Hi, I'm Chad Emerson, and this is the Downtown Explorer Podcast, the virtual third place where we gather for interesting conversations with downtown innovators and entrepreneurs. Hi, everyone. We're back on the Downtown Huntsville, Inc. Explorer Podcast, and we're excited. Today's guest is the Huntsville City Administrator, John Hamilton. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so the first question, obvious question, what is a city administrator and what does a city administrator do? So uh, the way the position has developed uh, here with Huntsville, it's, you know, it's really kind of like being a deputy mayor. I mean, there's, there's certainly, I've had people argue that that may be a little more accurate label because one of the things it is not is the same as city manager. And so if you look around the state of Alabama, you'll see some, some of our great cities actually have a city manager form of government where a city manager is hired to kind of do the day-to-day, almost chief, chief executive type duties on behalf of a city council. That is not what we have here. We absolutely have a full-time mayor, a strong mayor form of government, and I serve as, as one of his deputies in helping run the city on a daily basis. And so what's, I mean, I imagine your calendar on a daily basis looks like a thousand different things every day because it's such a big city, right? Yep. And I tell you, that's one of the things I love about the job is it is something different every single day. You know, just this afternoon, I had a meeting with uh, some of the leadership from the police department talking about some law enforcement issues. And right before that, had a meeting along with the mayor with a, you know, with a local businessman making an investment uh, in a restaurant and just, you know, kind of getting to know the mayor and, and the city and, and talking to us about some of the things that we're seeing and how we might be able to help him. So uh, it runs the full gamut every single day. Uh, oftentimes meeting with citizens, hearing about things that they want. Last night we had a meeting in one part of the city with a group of folks that would like to see us build some sort of public outdoor skating rink, you know. Uh, so how different is that from talking to, to law enforcement, how we're solving crime, right? Uh, so I get to do all those kind of things all the time, and that, uh, that keeps it fun for me. Jack of all trades in a lot of mm-hmm. way. Um, before city administrator, you were in also kind of a City, I don't know, like a, it's garrison commander, but that might be somewhat like a city administrator for Redstone, isn't it? It is, yeah. So you'll hear people refer to the garrison commander as the mayor of, of in this case, Redstone Arsenal. You know, every army uh, installation has a garrison commander. And, you know, they are essentially running the base from kind of just a, a city-type perspective and providing the services. So there's a public works department. And what they call MWR, Morale, Welfare, and Recreation, is like Parks and Recreation and has the law enforcement and the firefighting and all the things that it takes uh, to run that installation. And particularly ones the size of Redstone. We have Redstone Arsenal is actually a, a pretty good-sized military installation. Uh, there's, there's certainly some out there that are much bigger, but it's like a small city. And the things that it takes to build to maintain roads and sidewalks and storm drains and the sewer system and all the stuff that you deal with in, in a municipal government, the that military installation has had the exact same thing. So the garrison commander, uh, Colonel Lever Command for uh, for an installation like Redstone has all of that staff uh, to uh, to operate the base. So one of the things about Redstone, I mean, we we drive by it all the time on five sixty five, and a lot of people work on it, but I've heard it referred to as almost a federal office park as much as an army installation in, in fact aren't there a really small number of active duty army there really are yeah. okay so what so, makes up redstone so yeah there's about forty-two thousand folks that uh go to work on redstone arsenal uh, and they really fall into three categories one is government civilians so civil servants which is 
you know, 20 something thousand of the 42, probably almost close to 30,000 are civil servants, mostly Department of Defense, but there's also NASA and some other agencies, FBI and ATF, and there's a few other agencies, but the vast majority of folks that work out there are civil servants. Uh, and then you also have contractors. So a lot of our local contractors uh, provide workforce to work on programs and uh, or execute their contracts physically on the arsenal because just based on facilities and proximity to all those civil servants and how they partner with the agencies, it's best to locate them actually on the arsenal. And then you do have a very small number of people that come to work in a military uniform. Uh, probably well under a thousand are actually active duty military. Uh, so you're, you're kind of almost surprised when you see somebody in a military uniform. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, but that's, that's, I think part of the reason why you hear us in the local community and, and as a garrison commander on Redstone, I oftentimes refer to it as, as more of a federal office park. It's really just trying to help uh, someone who may be visiting from elsewhere, particularly somebody in the Department of Defense who's very accustomed to what things look like on a Fort Bragg, North Carolina, or Fort Stewart, Georgia, where there's virtually no civil servants, and it's almost all folks in the military, people that, you know, active duty military that are serving the tactical army, the needs of our installation in terms of the resources it needs to operate and for it to be successful in its mission are completely different than what a Fort Bragg or Fort Stewart might need. And so helping people understand that the things that it takes to attract the workforce is very different. So that's an area where I think the city is most closely partnered with Redstone. And what, what do we do for them? There's a lot of things we do for them, but most importantly, we grow and maintain a city where, where highly employable people want to live. Because while 42,000 people work on the arsenal, virtually none of them live on the arsenal. Hmm. And these are people that are highly educated, highly qualified, could get jobs basically anywhere in America. And the agencies that we have on Redstone and the companies that we have operating on or around Redstone need Huntsville and its surrounding communities to be places where, where those folks are willing to live. Because if they don't like living here, they can go find a great job somewhere else. Uh, so we spend a lot of time talking about quality of life. We spend a lot of time talking about, you know, making this a just a wonderful place to raise your family so that someone who is a rocket scientist who could easily get a job in California, Colorado, Washington, or elsewhere chooses Huntsville and chooses to work for SMDC or MDA or any one of those other agencies that we have out there. Yeah, and so on, on Redstone, obviously it's an Army post, but you also have Department of Justice, NASA, DOD, non-Army DOD. Mm-hmm. Um, from a former garrison's perspective, garrison commander's perspective, you know, we, when we hear about, oh, Space Command may be coming, like, mm-hmm. what's the significance of that from an operational perspective of an Army post like Redstone Arsenal? Well, it, you know, from you know some of the nuts and bolts things, it's different funding streams to to help pay for the services and things. So you know there's a funding stream that a garrison gets that comes from the army that that pays for a baseline level of services and and delivers certain things to the army specific organizations uh, that's handled within the garrison's budget. And then the the non army entities oftentimes have to pay for some of those services through a reimbursable process. So, uh, so just kind of the day to day, how do I run? How do I manage my budget? How do I deliver services? It, it's important to understand where they come from, just because of how you deal with the, the financial side of it. That's kind of the boring piece of it. Uh, the what's going to be particularly visible to the community 
and I think you know the interesting piece is this brings even more senior leaders. You're talking about several more general officers. Uh, that's why sometimes Redstone is referred to as the Pentagon of the South because it it has so many general officers, and it's not just the four star, three star general, two star general. When you have somebody of that of that level, that position, and the authority and the, and the scope and, and scale that comes with that, that means there's also a lot of senior people directly below them. That brings lots of subordinate general officers. It brings a lot of senior executive service civilians. It brings a lot of colonels and lieutenant colonels uh, and the civil servant grades that match that. Um, you know, when when you say we have a four-star command on the installation, you're also saying that means we have hundreds of GS-15s. We have hundreds of other, you know, GS-14s and dozens and dozens of colonels and things that you wouldn't find at one of those other installations like a Fort Bragg or a, a Fort Stewart uh, just because of the nature of, of of how those organizations are structured. So uh, it brings a lot of high-paying jobs. It brings a lot of very educated uh, people. Again, it brings more of those people that could live anywhere they want to. And so, uh, you know, it places demands on the community to, uh, to meet the needs of those kind of organizations. So we're here in downtown Huntsville, and it's not uncommon. You look up in the sky and you see helicopters flying around, mm-hmm. you know, double rotors, single rotors, whatever. Um, what's going on with helicopters and Redstone Arsenal? So one of the entities on Redstone Arsenal is the Redstone Test Center uh, and where, you know, program managers that, that help manage the life cycle of a helicopter system, like the, like the Chinook, for example, the Blackhawk, uh, you know, those are, those are systems that the Army will keep in its inventory for decades. So, you know, the form that it was in the first day that we brought it into service, however many decades ago it may be, that's not the helicopter we're flying today. It's had a lot of new technologies added to it. It has had a lot of improvements made to it, new capabilities that people didn't even think of 20 years ago are now necessary in order for it to accomplish its wartime mission. And so as those kind of technologies are being developed, we have to test them to make sure that they're really doing what we want them to do and that they're safe and things. And so the Redstone Test Center uh, is one of the primary entities in the Army based at Redstone Arsenal that actually performs that test on behalf of the Army, on behalf of the program managers for those various helicopter systems. So if you're here and you see a Blackhawk fly overhead, there's a decent chance that it's flying because it has some new piece of technology hung on it that they're testing to make sure that it's airworthy or that it performs what we want it to, whatever that may be, but whatever test they were commissioned to perform. Uh, so that's why sometimes, you know, we'll get calls up in the mayor's office about, hey, there's been a helicopter hovering over South Huntsville for the last hour. What's it doing? Well, it's testing something where hovering in one place for a long period of time was necessary for the test. Uh, so that's the vast majority of what you see. You will still see sometimes there's other traffic that's out there, uh, but the vast majority of what we're seeing here in in Huntsville is something from the Redstone Test Center. I think those helicopters with two rotors are really cool. What are those? The Chinooks. Yes. Okay. And I will tell you, I was a paratrooper throughout much of my career, and there's no better aircraft to jump out of than a Chinook, in my opinion. So So, uh, how do you get from garrison commander to city administrator? Walk us through that process. So uh, it's probably different for every single one who's ever done it. I'm not sure how many there are. I might be a, I might be a population of one, but um, you know, for me, it was in garrison command in that role. It was extremely important for me to develop partnerships and relationships with all of the local uh, leaders. So 
chairman of the county commission, the mayors of the various cities and things, and obviously uh, in that tenure, you know, uh, Mayor Battle was uh, was one of those. So we had opportunity to work together on a lot of things. Uh, the, the city played a critical role in what was happening at that time. And remember, during my tenure was when we were finishing up the construction that was a result of that last base realignment and closure, so a significant growth period, and receiving the commands uh, from wherever they came, mostly from the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, and so the garrison and our, our local mayors uh, worked very closely together in helping receive that new population and help get those organizations welcomed in. So through that, the mayor Ball and I spent a lot of time together. Uh, you know, fortunately for me, you know, since uh, since as as things developed, I wanted to to be able to come and do this kind of work. Uh, my predecessor was ready to retire and move on to to other things, and uh, so the opportunity was there. Uh, Mayor and I, Battle and I spoke a couple times about it and just kind of the timing worked out and it worked well for me to slide over into into this position. So uh, I've been here now for a little over eight years and love every minute of it. So you uh, end up on the eighth floor of City Hall right next to the mayor. Mm-hmm. That's where the mayor's office is. A lot of mm-hmm. people talk about going to the eighth floor, but um, pretty soon the eighth floor is not going to be where the mayor sits. Um, one of the the big projects that uh, you all and the city council and the entire city team are working on is a new city hall. So walk us through that whole process from evaluating an existing city hall and then deciding that a new city hall is the best decision going forward. Yeah, so there's a number of things that go into it. And actually, uh, we uh, it's, it's very similar to some things that, uh, that we did on the Arsenal in terms of just evaluating where organizations are physically positioned, how, how they function as an organization, and how do we improve that through the use of, of good facilities. And what I mean by that is, you know, we, what you think of as City Hall you really ought to think of your city hall and whatever city you're in is two different ways. One is there's the building that we define as the city hall. But also city hall is a collection of functions that a staff performs on behalf of their community. And when you think about it that way, our city hall is scattered into about seven or eight different places. And while we are certainly obviously making it work, we have a growing, vibrant community. And so I have a lot of confidence in how the city staff supports the community. We know that we can do it much more effectively, much more efficiently if we can actually get those departments that need to be together together uh, and can collaborate more efficiently. It's much more efficient for our citizens to engage in those services and things. But the city hall, the building is way too small. It's not even 50% of the space that the we The current need. city hall. The current city hall is not even 50% of the capacity we need in order to, to consolidate all those functions into one building. Uh, and also, it's in pretty poor condition physically. It has challenges just even from its original construction and design. There's things about it that just there's, there's not really any efficient way any cost-efficient way to, to make it a functional building. Uh, and so we're certainly keeping the building alive and kind of limping along with it. Uh, but as soon as we can get into a new building, we need to. But we also need to move out of what used to be a library, now the engineering building, have multiple departments over there that really need to be uh, back into City Hall. We've got multiple departments actually in leased spaces and other buildings around downtown. Uh, and that's just not an efficient way for the staff to function. So 
you know, in a new building, we'll be able to do things like having the engineering department and urban development and planning all together on one floor. And just the collaboration that comes from that, the 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 goodness that comes from just the chance meetings around the water cooler kind of mm-hmm. conversations. There's just a lot of value to that. Getting the clerk treasurer and the entire finance department all together on one floor. Right now, our finance department is on four different floors. We need them on one floor co-located with the clerk treasurer because of the way they collaborate and work together, the way they serve citizens right now. Uh, you know, a business owner needs to come into City Hall and he needs to sign up his tax account and he needs to get his business license. Right now he goes to multiple different floors to do that. He'll be able to do that in one place with one clerk and get it all done at one time. Uh, so there's just multiple examples of that as you go throughout the kind of the functions that we perform uh, for the community where we'll be able to do that just much, much more effectively. Uh, and, but it will free up some properties that as we vacate that will have then also potential for much higher and better use. Uh, whether it's a public use or a private use, uh, there's certainly there's there's properties that the citizens own right now. They're city-owned properties, which means our citizens and our taxpayers own them that we could get much better use out of by getting consolidated into a new modern building. But your point about the eighth floor, if you go to the new city hall here in a couple of years and you find yourself on the eighth floor, that means you're up on top of the roof because it will actually be seven floors. Uh, and so if you go to see the mayor in the future, you'll talk about being on the seventh floor instead of the eighth floor. So um, one of the buildings that will be vacated is where a lot of professionals go now, a lot of developers is, you know, the old library, you know, the engineering building, whatever you want to call it. That's where you get your building permit and inspections. What's the process once you vacate that, move into a new city hall, educate us on how a city evaluates what to do with that, because it sounds like it's now not going to be needed for city uses. That's the whole idea Mm -hmm. of the bigger city hall. What's the process for evaluating What's next for that space? Well, so that's, you know, we'll, we'll have a, a team of folks, uh, and I, to be honest with you, I, I fully expect DHI to have a voice, uh, you know, in terms of just kind of recommending uh, where, where we go with that kind of facility. The building itself is, is pretty aged. It probably would be challenging to, to convert the existing building into a modern uh, good use, although we certainly would listen to ideas for that. But I think most likely what you see happen there is we look at it, we, uh, we decide, one, is, is there a public need that we have? You know, is there, do we need a park there or do we need some other public thing? Um, or is this really, this the best use for this, is the best value back for our community to allow this to get a private development on it? Um, if it, if it, if a decision is made that we need a piece of property to remain public and to get some public use where there's a void right now that we need to fill, then it would stay within, you know, this under city ownership and we would go start going through that design process like we do with any other facility. Um, if the decision's made that it needs to go private, generally speaking, what uh, what we prefer to do is put out an RFP and allow the market, you know, to tell us what they see as the best use, what's going to have the, the, the best commercial output. Uh, and then we certainly evaluate that from property tax and sales tax and other kinds of revenues back into, uh, into the city. Uh, but I would expect any of the properties that we vacate where we choose to explore private development would be done through a request for proposal process. Uh, and certainly, you know, where it is, its size, what's around it will ultimately dictate what's that highest and best use, whether it's an office building or a condo building or whatever it may be. Um, you know, the market, I think, will tell us uh, what's going to be that highest and best use. Uh, 
And quite frankly, if, if as we evaluate uh, any responses to those kind of proposals, if, if we're not comfortable that it's the right direction to go, we always have the ability to just hit pause and, yeah. and, and allow uh, the economy to catch up or whatever it may be, whatever we think may be holding back us getting the best value out of it. We can always you know, pause and, and try again later if we need to. I think that as, we, as I look at the places that will vacate uh, in order to consolidate into the city hall, I think there'll be some properties that will go that private route that, uh, that we likely would sell or lease uh, for private uses. And I also think there's some properties where there's some, some public needs uh, that, uh, where we would retain those properties and, and meet some other public need that isn't necessarily a city hall building. So. And one of the things you alluded to right now, downtown office space is in high demand and there's very low vacancy. There will be some um, openings. I guess it's GIS is in, a, in an office building right downtown. I, I assume that's moving to the new city hall. Is that right? It will, yep. And so you'll open up a fair amount of really highly valuable private office space. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you decide what to put inside a new city hall and what to leave outside? Because not everything's going to be in there. Yeah, it's it's really you know what function do they do, does the department perform and uh, you know and how does the public engage with with that department and, and how does that department need to interact with others? So, uh, an example of a department that we evaluated at one point thought we would move into city hall, but reverse course on that and, and left them outside of city hall is our parks and recreation kind of the the central office. Um, there, that's just a a service that needs to be more easily accessible. Um, you know, obviously we want everybody in our community to feel comfortable coming to City Hall, but the manner in which they meet with and engage with the public is just done better away from, away from City Hall, away from the density of the downtown. Um, but there's other departments uh, that are, are outside of downtown right now that uh, we are moving into City Hall because of the way they really kind of focus more internally, like parts of our general services department that really focuses internally on managing, designing, building our buildings. Uh, you know, they need to be much closer to the decision makers inside of City Hall, the mayor, myself, finance, uh, those kind of things. And so there are some that, uh, that we're actually moving into downtown that aren't there right now. The, we have two department or, or two entities, fairly sizable entities that are in leases and privately owned office buildings downtown that both move into city hall. So there's two examples like you brought up that will uh, will vacate some some private commercial space. Another one, our ITS department's actually in space that's in the Huntsville Utilities building, so publicly owned, uh, but it's space that Huntsville Utilities has need for, so it'll be good. It won't it won't go to waste by getting them moved into city hall. It certainly makes us better and more efficient, but it also then frees up space in the building there that that will be valuable fronts utilities so there's some things like that that will uh will certainly create some movement downtown uh we would love to see as we move out of those private uh, leases we you know we certainly hope that there's entities that will backfill in, in that space and i think based on on the demand as you mentioned that that will happen so yeah i think that's a that's an underrealized benefit of consolidating the efficiency of consolidation is, is great for uh, users but also opening up space for these businesses that want to come downtown and uh, when City Hall opens, they'll probably have, you know, 10,000 or so square feet of downtown ready to be leased. That's right. So one of the things I remember changing course a little bit when I interviewed for this job, I remember sitting down with Mayor Battle and he says, you know, we want a dynamic downtown where people of all ages, you know, young professionals, people with kids, retirees, they all come and gather. And now we have that. And that's mm-hmm. a really good thing. Mission accomplished, right? Yep. 
But there's a new set of challenges that come with that. For example, when you have a lot of people downtown, when you have no one downtown, there's not a lot of need for mm-hmm. much law enforcement downtown to patrol streets that are empty. But now we have streets that we debate closing here, closing there. How is the city evolving with a more dynamic, active downtown? Sure. Um, I would say, you know, the the needs of kind of this the the dense urban core that we have uh, is 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 just part of a bigger picture that we have within law enforcement and a challenge that we have in law enforcement and is growing the police department uh, along with the city. Um, you know, getting the manpower in, uh, it is, it's a position of one, it's hard to become a police officer It is very challenging. You know, it's, it's high standards to even qualify to interview. Uh, it's high standards to get through that interview and testing process to get to the Academy. Uh, graduating the Academy is not easy. Which are all good uh, things, right? Those are very good things. (laughs) That that, that means we're, you know, we are producing the police officers that you want to have in your community. Um, I say that to say the kind of the folks that you want to have as police officers are also very employable and other other things. Uh, so it's important that we we care for them and equip them and train them and and uh, make sure that we can continue to grow the department as the city is growing rapidly. There's more and more challenges uh, to just properly police the entire city. One of the things uh, that we look at as we're as we're going through that growth and just in the last you know the budget that the city council just passed and we started here on one October it includes more growth in the police department to to meet those demands. Uh, a lot of their work is just the laws of physics, the time space factors associated with a city as large as ours uh, is particularly challenging for for law enforcement. Um, but the way you police a low density, you know, cul-de-sac style neighborhood area of the city is very different than the way you need to police a downtown, which I think is really kind of the point you're getting at. Uh, you know, we've all watched the old TV shows with the beat cop walking the streets. Well, there's actually some aspects of that, that even in 2021 would be a great thing to have here in our downtown area. And the bike patrol is another example of that. Um, you know, cause most of the city, you really, we, our police operate from their cars, uh, but we have events and just, you know, daily uh, uh, things in downtown where it'd be better to have police out walking around sometimes. Uh, so we are working towards that. Right now, our police department is divided up into three precincts that have geographic uh, areas of the city. Uh, we expect within the next couple of years to actually add a fourth precinct. So, you know, subdivide some of that with that fourth precinct being here to the central area. And uh, where right now our three precincts all are, are manned and equipped very, very similarly, I would expect that central precinct to have some unique aspects, have some of that bike patrol and have some of the things that are unique to the downtown area and the way in which our law enforcement can engage with the community. So we recognize it. Uh, we are we are growing into that, not growing as fast as I would like us to. Uh, but, you know, we are right now in an environment where everybody is, is fighting to get a, a high quality workforce. We're growing the community and we're seeing that happen. We're making progress on it. But uh, that's that's the direction we're headed. So I think, you know, you and I have talked about it a number of times and we've talked to, to the chief and, and his leadership team. I think we're all really on the same sheet of music and what that looks like going forward. Uh, but it's just going to take time to grow grow the organization to, to meet those demands. One of the great thing about bike patrol officers is just by their very nature, they have a different uniform. And so I'll see, we do have bike patrol here. And when they are at a downtown event, it's really amazing how um, guests to the event will just walk up to them and almost ask them for directions. Sure. Whereas there's, if you see a officer with lights on his car with, you know, the full uniform on, sometimes people are a little bit like, 
even though they have no arrest warrants, they're still kind of <laughs> like, I don't know, right? Yeah. So uh, tell us mm -hmm. about the, a bike patrol and what a, ideally what a bike patrol in downtown would be able to provide. Well, it's you're, you're right. I mean, it, it's because you, you don't have that, you know, 2,000-pound car around you, it, uh, it, you, it just look more approachable. And, and, and the police understand that. That's why they, they have uh, created softer uniforms for certain things. And, and not like just golf like, shirts, right? Yeah, like, like polo shirts or, or things. Uh, you'll see our community resource officers and our, and our school resource officers, uh, you know, wearing different attire for whatever occasion they're engaged in. So, uh, you know, it's, we understand that, um, you know, and that finding that balance between making sure police that are, are in a role where, where they've got to be prepared for kind of the worst possible thing, they're equipped and dressed a certain way, and then you pull them into a different environment, maybe they don't have the attire for it. So uh, we understand that. I, you know, I understand when I'm wearing a business suit and a tie, people look at me differently than if I'm in shorts and a polo shirt, right? So it's, it's just kind of common human nature. But, um, you know, we, we do want to find those opportunities for the police to engage. It, special events is a great example where we've closed the street, we have a festival going on, a concert going on, whatever, uh, making sure that the officers are, are given the, the latitude to, to be in a posture that is more approachable. Um, so I would I would encourage people to approach our officers regardless of how they're dressed. But we do understand that sometimes when they're in that full uniform and they're with their car, they look busy. They look like they have some duties and maybe you don't want to interrupt them where we're one who's in a more casual posture and just more comfortable talking to them. But yeah, I would say go talk to your police officers. They're there to serve you. Uh, but we do want to give more opportunities for things like bike patrol. Yeah. You know, it, it is be, the driving a car around downtown when there's a big event going on could be challenging sometimes where a, a bike can get to a lot of places, even when we've closed the street. So we don't drive the police car through a closed street but they'll drive their bikes through there. So it's just, you know, it's just a, an easier, more flexible way to deal with a high-density event with a lot of people, uh, a lot of cars, whatever it may be. So. And I have had multiple times, no joke, people ask me, why doesn't the Huntsville Police Department ever bring out their horse-based officers? Why don't they do that? Because we don't have any. We don't have any, okay? So <laughs> let's put it on the record. There are, yeah, they have them in Atlanta, all right? They have them in a lot of places, but we do not have. So quit wondering why the horses mm -hmm. never come out. So last question before we go to your favorite five. Um, you started in your position around the same time DHI started. Reflecting on those eight years, what's been one of the biggest surprises for you about downtown? Hmm. You know, I'm not, that's, I'm not sure that... Uh, I'm not sure that I'm surprised by where we are. Um, there's probably times in there where I felt like some of the development would go faster mm -hmm. than it has. Um, I'm not sure that it would have been good for it to go faster, though. I think that I see our downtown uh, growing more organically and, and the market, I think, doing a, a decent job of metering itself and not growing too fast. It, it probably would have been pretty easy for us, and it would have maybe taken some, you know, some artificial injections of, of influence from the city to get more hotels faster or more office buildings faster. But I don't know that they 
would have been healthy businesses. You know, we need we need the private market to tell us when it's ready for a new office building, a new hotel building, uh, or whatever uh, it may be. And my sense is the market is doing that pretty well. Sure, there's some places where, you know, we recognize, hey, if we had another hotel, we'd be in a better place, sure. Um, but in general the the extreme enthusiasm that we you and I walked into in 2013 when we when we came into our roles and what we saw in 2014 I I thought things would go faster um but the reality is I think we're developing at a healthy pace and faster probably would not have been healthy so Mine is that there are a thousand people playing putt putt on the sidewalks of downtown Huntsville. I mean, who would have thought that? But well, since you created that, you shouldn't be surprised that it's happening. I didn't know if it was going to work. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's John Hamilton, the city administrator, former garrison commander, uh, city administrator for the city of Huntsville. Uh, great conversation. This could go on uh, forever, but we have to wrap it up now with the favorite five, one of the best segments, right, Tim? All right, so these are one uh, designed to be one-word answers. You can elaborate if you'd like, but we try to really get a, learn about the person behind the, the the personality behind the person we talk to. So you are an FSU fan. Question number one: FSU baseball or FSU football? Football. Number two: a German pilsner or an English stout? Uh, German pilsner. Although Hefeweizen is way better. Okay, we'll give you a Hefeweizen. Yeah. Door number three, right? <laughs> Your uh, daughters are really celebrated swimmers, so you should probably have a good answer to this. Uh, best female American swimmer ever, Katie Ledecky or Janet Evans? Ledecky. Okay. There may be an argument that the best female athlete we've ever had, certainly probably the most successful. Yeah, Katie Ledecky, and, and mm-hmm. she's probably going to be at the next Olympic or two. I mean, he doesn't she, seem to be she'll slowing She'll go down. as long as she wants to. All right, best Florida Knoll, Charlie Ward or Deion Sanders? Oh, Deion Sanders. Okay. Wow. Dion. I, I would have thought Charlie, man. Charlie was hey, So Charlie Ward is the most decorated college football athlete ever. He won, you know, at the time, he won every single award he was eligible for. Uh, that had not happened before. But Dion is still the best defensive back there has ever been. And I would argue there's never been anybody better at their position than Dion was at his position. All right, so we have a Deion Sanders fan in the room. (laughs) And if you had to choose, would you choose an amazing steak or an amazing hamburger? Wow. I always get one wow. You know, I was like, wait for that. (laughs) I think I would actually go for the hamburger. All right, I bet you that might be a Five Guys or something, right? (laughs) I I would take a Five Guys hamburger spot every day if I could get one. All right, well, great answers, your favorite five. That's John Hamilton. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll talk to you next time on the Downtown Huntsville Explorer Podcast. Thank you.